they always joke when I was growing up, sort of like, Dad, why can't we just go to the supermarket like normal people? Can we please go to the supermarket? Do we have to grow everything that we eat and make everything as well, you know? Um, of course, I was getting an extraordinary grounding in um, art, sort of artisanal sort of food production, and I didn't realise it. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Growing up in an Italian-Australian family, Nino Zaccali experienced the most extraordinary food rituals, including the annual celebration of breaking down a whole pig and using every single part of it. It led to a career in food, where he now runs one of the best Italian restaurants in Australia. Nino... I know you've uh, had a long career and connection with pork with your family and Italian heritage, but you're currently making house-made pancetta at Pendolino. Yeah, we, um, we're we doing actually texting guanciale, so the cheek, and yeah, using Dad's recipes. So um, we had a new uh, chef de cuisine head chef join our business and uh, through COVID, uh, George Kohler, and he's really into to, um, small goods. So I told him about my dad's recipe for, that he uses for guanciale, pancetta, all the cured um, um, cuts. And um, so we we trialled it. So dad's coming over in a, about a month's time. He said he's going he's gonna to do a quality control session and tell us whether we're doing, doing any good with it, <laughs> which, we're, which we're looking forward to. Well, tell us, tell us about the the process and the decision to use your dad's dad's recipe. Was it easy to wrestle it off him? Uh, dad's dad's really funny. No, he's really generous with his recipes and methodology. He loves sharing all that stuff. He's just such a uh, deep font of knowledge on everything to do with processing, curing food, and of course, pork is. You know, there's Italy generally is not a lot of flat arable land, so. Pigs are really uh, have become important in their sort of in terms of protein um, consumption because they take up so little land and they can be so versatile. So pork was a big thing for us growing up, doing all the the, the small goods. You do them once a year in the middle of winter, of course, when it's cold, and so making sausages and and curing the meat. So the reason we got so excited about it was because, you know, dad's stuff is so good. That's basically it. Um, and um, so with, with, with the guanciale and with pancetta, he, we just heavily salt it down for a couple of days and then you wash it with wine um, and, and then, uh, and then you basically um, air cure it. And for the for the smaller cuts, it's sort of two weeks, and then it's ready to go. It's quite soft, but it's really beautiful, um, beautiful flavour. Of course, you can add. Dad would often put um, cracked black pepper or even fine pepper all over the as a as a as a um, as an additional curing method. So, um, and then you can have it with. Other dried herbs and stuff as well. If you want to put rosemary, you're really the Tuscans are really big with the larador and putting um, rosemary all over, um, all over the those kinds of cured cuts. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing. So it's awesome. We we then cry back it down. So we want to keep it keep it really consistent for use for us. 
and even Dad now, he's you know he's um, very traditional in what he does, but he does own a little cryback machine, and he loves that machine, so he uses it a lot. It's funny watching an eighty-six-year-old white-haired Italian um, obsess over a cryback machine in his home kitchen. How important is the the right pig for for what you're doing with that? Do you do you have a direct relationship and source the the pig that you need for this? Yeah, well, we do. We 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 um we've had a long association. I have for many years um, with um, actually a Victorian producer um, near Bannockburn um, called Golden Plains. It's it's used a lot in Victoria. It's amazing. They've got a um, so these are free range bred pigs um, and that uh, live in eco shelters. So we know a lot about the animal husbandry of the of the um, of the product which is really important i've been to the farm um and uh they've got a specific dietary regime that they give uh, the animals as well and it's just um it's not really so much about the breed um but it's more about the feeding regime and the way they look after these pigs the flavor is really amazing you cook, cooking fresh product crackling is really probably the best i've ever had in australia um Having said all that, you know, if for the fattier cuts, it doesn't really matter so much. But I think if you're doing whole muscles, because in Italy, of course, they grow their pigs much bigger. You know, in Australia, pig producers get penalised for overgrowing pigs. So because of the because of the, the well, we've had a big obsession around fat fat quantity and 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 how people that's been associated in a negative way with health issues so um but in italy they grow their pigs much bigger so you get um you get more intramuscular fat which is really important for curing whole muscle like meat muscle rather than fat cuts so for pancetta for guanciale it doesn't really matter and even for sausages because if you can mix the right fat content into the sausage um, when you're mincing it, it's you kind of can do. We can do just about everything they do in Italy and you know and other places like Spain as well. But um, for the for the for the actual whole muscle cured meats, the intramuscular fats really really important. And the the best I've had in Australia, and I haven't done this, but the best I've had is usually always Berkshire because it's because it's you know it's like the wagyu of, of, of pork and it does have more intramuscular fat inside the actual meat muscle so that's really really important but it's traditionally something that we've really steered away from doing whole muscle cured um cuts because because of the fat the intramuscular fat issue it's a real it's a really big issue because they just taste taste salty rather than the flavor these beautiful flavors you should get with like you know with like proper prosciutto and culotello and cuts like that with your Italian heritage, when when did you first develop an appreciation for the pig? Um, I'm not sure whether you. I'm, it's really hard. It's hard to say because it's always been there for me. It's um, and and probably for most, uh, you know, not only Italian culture, lots of European cultures. Pork's huge, you know. So the French eat lots of it as well, and so the Spanish, of course, is really really important um, in a similar way to Italy and. Um, and and um, so for me, I, I don't know. I, I, that's really difficult because I it, dad's cured sausages and um, you know the annual ritual of killing the pig and and making all the small goods. 
uh, is something that was always been there. So I can't, I don't really know. It's sort of something that we were, you know, before we were probably conscious, we were getting an unconscious appreciation of it, like everything else that was going on. I always joke when I was growing up, I was sort of like, sort of like, Dad, why can't we just go to the supermarket like normal people and buy our food from the supermarket? Can we please go to the supermarket? Do we have to grow everything that we eat and make everything as well, you know? Um, of course, I was getting an extraordinary grounding in um, art, sort of artisanal sort of food production, and I didn't realise it, but when I was went sent to boarding school, I, I realised really quickly that where I came from wasn't a bad place in terms of food, that's for sure. Do you have any stories of um, of those sort of uh, rituals, that yearly rituals, like breaking down a whole pig and making sausages and stuff like that? Yeah, there's yeah, there's 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 um there's lots of them. There's funny funny stories with my dad. So my mum's side of the family are Anglo Australians, and they're farmers. So they've been livestock farmers in the southwest of Western Australia for for about a hundred years. Um, oh. Traditionally. Uh, Traditionally, they were uh, dairy farmers and um, and cream for butter, and um, and they and then in, in sort of more recent decades, uh, sort of transitioned more to beef, and so and they would grow pigs and stuff as well. So they would have everything on the farm, and this was in Capel in Western Australia, and of course, Dad would go to see my. Um, my um, my grandfather on my mother's father, to, you know, to get livestock if he ever wanted to do something like the pig every year, and they would they were sort of like they were they were pretty interested in the whole process as well. Thought it was quite amazing, you know, the whole the way that the treat the pig was treated and it, annually. So, I guess the thing is that it's about the. Pig, really, this process of it's really about um, taking a fresh product and having it as a sort of like um, preserving caloric value for 12 months so they can eat it. And of course, um, and, and this is the same really for cheese. Cheese is exactly the same. Uh, all the vegetables that are pickled, is, it's the same. It's about when you've got an abundance of one thing, learning how to really, you know, and, and, and really, you know, sort of artisanal way, making it something that's really beautiful to eat for the whole 12 months. So, you know, and cheese is that as well. When you've got an abundance of milk, you turn it into a, a you know, a hard protein that you can eat through the through the whole year. So the pig is really the same. It's like take, you kill an animal and, uh, and, and it's really important to eat every little bit of it. And I think for me that's where the real – beauty and the art form is actually being able to eat every part of the animal but make it so it's so so beautiful to eat and anyway dad was always obsessed because he came to australia from from deep poverty like most migrants did and and do and and so every little bit of the pig would be used so and my mum's side of the family that you know um in those days everyone was pretty frugal and you know offer was eating a lot more uh, than, it, than it is today, purely through necessity as well. But Dad was, like most Italians, migrant Italians, was obsessed around using every little part of the pig. And they, so when they would bleed the pig, Dad would, you know, have a bucket underneath the throat 
it sounds very gory, but it's what you do. So, you know, so they bleed the pig and then they would beat the blood. So the blood would be made into like a black pudding or uh, the Calabresi actually make a beautiful, they make beautiful desserts with it as well, which sounds very gory, but it's actually beautiful. It's a chocolate dessert they, that they make, which is stunning. And um, so, so they would get the blood. He would get every little bit of it. Of course, the trotters are celebrated, you know, like in, in Calabrese culture, the, the pig's trotters are like, you know, like a, you know, they're like a really revered thing. And I, I love them too. So anyway, when you, when you kill a pig, um, as a lot of the listeners will know, there, there is a final squeal that the pig actually makes. Uh, after it's shot, and, and or as it's as it's shot, and they would they 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 um, the Anglo side of the family asked Dad before they killed the pig. He didn't really know what the word squeal mean squeal meant, but they asked him to go and get a bucket for the squeal. So Dad would Dad run off madly to go get this bucket, and he's holding it by the by the head of the pig, and uh, and. And, and then he says, where's the squeal? I want the squeal. <laughs> you can't chuck the squeal out. Give it to me, you know. So anyway, that was just one of these funny things. It was a bit of a joke, but it became a a bit of a story of legend. We're, we're, it's interesting. I was just in Italy, and, and I've got to say that even in Italy now, they, you know, the, the consumption of offal and what they call the quinto quarto, so the fifth quarter of the pig, i.e. The, the quarter of the pig that nobody that nobody wants. Um, it's 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 really they eat a lot less of it even in Italy nowadays. And I've, I was at an amazing restaurant in Milan called Tripa, which um, is uh, the word for tripe in Italian. So it's a restaurant that specialises in tripe. Uh, sorry, specialises in um, in offal and all eland vegetables from all over Italy. It's a, he's a chef. He's a, he's, a, he's fantastic. He's named Diego, Diego Rossi, and um, and he's basically a vegan, uh, and pretty much only cooks offal and eland vegetables. And, yeah, and he's and he's one of the fittest people I've ever met. And he's and he does it so well. It was amazing. Um, you know, my partner wife is is a uh, She's pescatarian, but predominantly vegetarian, and the vegetable dishes were so amazing as well. And but um, yeah, so it was really interesting. And uh, and and there's a big emphasis on pork in his restaurant as well. That, um, and it's just um, it's interesting. So so and that's one of the hottest tickets to, tickets in Milan in terms of restaurants at the moment. So that's that's really good to see some of the tradition being brought back even in Italy nowadays. Given your upbringing and that understanding and appreciation of using the whole pig that was in your family heritage, when you became a professional chef, uh, what was it like creating dishes in restaurants um, to ensure consistency, but trying to use the sort of cuts that you you love of a pig? Yeah, well, I guess um, a lot of us really probably – Quite, um, quite counter, counter, you know, counter cyclical on this stuff, and we're always interested in doing stuff that is. I mean, I, you know, it's really funny because in the early days, it was like if you went back twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, you wouldn't dream 
um, that you'd see pork belly in a supermarket, um, and you definitely would w- couldn't ever imagine that you could buy pork fillet for fourteen dollars a kilo, whilst the pork belly was twenty eight dollars a kilo in a supermarket. <laughs> it was just it's just crazy in terms of trend. So for me, when I started, it was like pork belly was like one of the most awesome cuts you could ever use because that's what we grew up with. A lot of our sauces were made with pork belly and skin. Actually, just some sauces were made just with skin of the pig uh, and really, really stunning. So, you know, nowadays it's like, nowadays it's uh, it's um, probably one of the most prime cuts and most luxurious cuts of the pig is, is the pork belly, which we always thought it was, but... Yeah, you, um, you know, once upon a time, you, you, they could barely give it away. Um, and so I guess for me, it's it's fascinating just to see the evolution of trends and tastes. Um, and, of course, a lot of this is done really through sort of trickle-down effect from, from chefs. I think Peter Gilmore, original sort of pork belly and scallop dish a long, long, long time ago now was probably almost single-handedly changed the perception of pork belly and gave chefs permission to use it um, in a way that we hadn't been able to. And um, oh, like I'd always, I always used it, you know. Um, we had a dish at, right back in 2000 in Otto when we first opened it. We, we, we used to serve roasted pork belly then. It was hard to find on meanness, but everyone would really, really, you know, everyone really loved it. Um, so... Tell us about that dish. Well, well, it was just a cutlet we did. It was sort of like a, a rista, which was a cutlet that we we did. Um, that we um, did it like a sort of like Tuscan Roman, that central part of Italy sort of style, where they'll roast the whole whole rack. So we did an individual cutlet, but we served it with a piece of roasted. Um, we would whole roast whole pork bellies and serve it almost like you get roasted, you know, the pork belly, um, you know, in Chinese restaurants and. Um, and we serve it with a beautiful piece of roasted pork belly and crackling with the cutlet um, and just a little beautiful little frisee salad. Um, Escarola is like a you know, vegetable that is difficult to get in really good quality in Australia, but a beautiful fresh little salad. And we, yeah, we, we would roast it with like um, with roasted garlic and fennel, like a fennel powder that we made, um, fennel citrus powder that we made. Um, with with some rosemary as well, traditional yeah traditional way to do it in in that part of the that part of Italy. Um, well, as our interpretation of it, and yeah, so that was like that was two thousand two thousand and one, so just twenty years ago. And then pork belly was really you didn't see it on menus, and we didn't even we didn't even advertise that we were putting it on the plate. We just put it on the plate because it tastes so good, and everyone goes amazing. So. You mentioned uh, sauces that you used to make with skin. Can you tell us about that? And do you have an example or two of them? Yeah. So, so, um, so, yeah. So sometimes they would do some really interesting. And so the, the Italians don't really smoke smoke meats very much. So, um, but they they would they would sometimes do smoked like cured sausages. They would smoke them and then they would store them. Um, they would store them under lard, almost like a coffee, and then pull them out 
through the years you want to use them rather than air, air cure them. Air cure them for a while, then they'd submerge them in lard and leave them like, very much like confit duck and confit goose in France and, and a slightly smoked flavour. Um, in Calabria, they use a lot of, yeah, and it's like andouillas really, you know, it comes from there. So there's a lot of, um, you'd say chili, but it's almost like capsicum sort of, um, they use lots of um, sort of dried chili in the sausages. It's really, really, so you get a very strong paprika kind of flavour coming through. Not really smoked, but this particular sausage was a lot like that because it was smoked and that would submerged that. And they did a similar thing with the skin. Um, so, um, and of course, with the skin, you have do have a layer of some some fat, and they would submerge that as well. So once again, this is all about killing an animal and then using the caloric value through, you know, an extended period of time through the year because the consumption. Everyone talks about really about the, you know, the Mediterranean diet being um, one of the best for health, you know, sort of blue zone type sort of uh, diet. But, but what they're really talking about is the diet of the Mediterranean probably in the 1950s and 60s because that diet was um, – so animal protein was 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 eaten a lot less, and there's a lot of protein came from legumes and vegetable matter. And so the diet of that period, meat was part of it, but probably not nowhere near what we eat eat, eat today. Um, so this methodology, you might pull a little bit of sausage out, then you might make a sauce or a skin. You might make a, you know, um, a classic tomato sauce with that, almost, or a goo, um, with with something semi cured. Um, and then there was also the, you know, when the pig was killed also, there was also the fresh, the treatment of the fresh meat as well when, while it was fresh. So the skin would often be used, um, and then just made like a, like a meat ragu. So you would just, uh, sort of normal treatment, but you used the protein would be, and of course this, you got this beautiful unctuous kind of, uh, tomato based sauce with um, cubes of like skin with a little bit of fat underneath it that you use for pasta. The nicest thing you've ever eaten in terms of the that style of a pasta. It's just amazing. So, um, and you get this like gelatinous jelly kind of thing going on. This beautiful pork fat with the tomato, and it's um, it's not on Jenny Craig's list of um, things to eat. Really. But if you, if, you have it, if you have it once every three or four months, it's probably okay for you. Um, beautiful, just really, really beautiful, you know, and you'd just often, that'd often have some rosemary in it as well. You get a little bit of rosemary and tomato and, um, yeah, and that's, that's yeah, that, that's one of my favourite pastas of all time. I don't cook it very often because it, cause it, it's, um, yeah, my wife doesn't eat. Um, she's pescatarian, so um, I'm a I'm a very I'm a big fan. But and and to a lot of people, I, I don't think that the idea of a sauce made with pigskin is, is is sounds appetising. It would be for you, Anthony, I know, but but not not for everybody. Definitely, definitely got a little bit tricky in the restaurant to sell as well. But it's beautiful. I can assure you, it's amazing. And and one of these great examples of how to use something which is. Uh, you know, which is perceived as, you know, of course, Cote Kino is, you know, a similar thing where 
pigskin. It's a pigskin sausage, which you know is absolutely um, revered from sort of you know more than a, you know in your in your media Romania and up. You know, and the, of course in Friuli they have a version called Musetto, which is um, but similar similar thing, but um, made with the snout of the pig, um, exclusively the pet snout of the pig, and heavily heavily spiced with cinnamon and, and stuff. So so Musetto in Friuli is really, you know, um, their version of Zampone. And um, that's just, I mean, that's just, you know, I don't, it's so good. It's just so beautiful and, um, yeah, and lots of collagen and really good for you as well. Pendolino is one of Australia's best Italian restaurants. Is, is the version of Pendolino that we see today, is that the same as the vision you had when you first started? Pendolino, I mean, I guess like most restaurants that, you know, we're, you know, we, we opened in 08, in the history of 08, so we're, we're sort of um, into our 15th year, I think, now. So sort of in, in, in restaurant years, like dog years, that's, you know, you, yeah, you have to multiply that up to get a true sense of the age. Um, uh, look for like most restaurants, it's it's evolved and it's really evolved, um, evolved a lot. And I guess the evolution of the restaurants, like a lot of things, um, has really been fast tracked through COVID as well. So that that's been a big big change for us. And it's it's there's I think the I think really the the DNA is the same from when we first opened, um, but it's just really grown up into an adult and um, and that's been driven largely by you know our client base and expectations around the restaurant and stuff that we that we wanted wanted to do so. COVID, COVID was really tricky. You know, we, we, of course, you know, had to open up for 10 people at one stage, which was kind of sounded crazy. And, you know, I had arguments with, you know, industry association lobbying for us around, you know, around what the point of that was. And, you know, the feedback to me was, well, just make it work for yourself if you can. And, so look, we we've we with all the restrictions, we had to really change what we were doing. So we've made the tables the t- tables are bigger. We've taken seating capacity out. Uh, we have a much stronger emphasis on on uh, tasting formats more than we did before. We we did this because we didn't have a choice, and we wouldn't have done it like with COVID. But um, I guess when we did it was really very surprising to us that the feedback we got from our client base. Our core client base was that they thought it was brilliant and much preferred it, um, which was bizarre for us because we weren't expecting that. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of gone to another level again, but not really through our volition, through through necessity, through COVID, and it's kind of settled in. It's coming out of COVID in a different place, and. Uh, I'm really happy about that because it's it's kind of the pendolino that I've always kind of wanted, but was never probably um, you know quite had the um, you know the the full the full uh, guts to do you know, and it was we we're forced to do a lot of this stuff, and um, and I guess like you know everything that you really need to pay attention to and take care of, you just had to we just had to really monitor how how everything was being taken because it was risky doing it as well. Um, and, um, yeah, look, 
it's it's as I said before, I think really the DNA is really there. I think it's really evolved and really matured as as a version of itself. And um, yeah, it's uh, it, that's what's happened. It's it's a little bit different. Um, but you know, we've just been you know we've just been to Europe and to Italy and and I guess the whole world's had you know, not much hasn't changed in some in some significant way. Is is what we're seeing, and um, yeah, so that's really what's happened. There's been a real renaissance with Italian food in Australia, and an incredible connection between Italy and Australia from a culinary sense on Australia's dining landscape. How, how do you describe the offering and, and the food of Pendolino? Um, I think, um, yeah. Look, I mean, is it? I mean, this this seems to be more and more and more and more Italian all the time, you know. And I guess for for us, it's it's. And this process that's happened through COVID, I guess it's around us probably um, really owning our identity, I guess, more and more, which is it, it is a refined restaurant now. And um, it's still the sense of classic Italian food and the flavours have to, you know, I always say, I always say to the guys, you know, if a 90-year-old 90 Italian doesn't, out of Italy, doesn't need to, relate to every single dish, but they need to be able to relate to the flavours and they need to be able to, because if you take a Sicilian and you take them to Northern Italy and you eat the traditional food of that region, it's not their food. It's not, they won't necessarily totally relate to it, but they're usually going to like it because it's really well-made food. So for me, it's like um, the evolution, you just can't lose sight of really the essence of Italian cooking. And for me, the essence of Italian cooking is really about flavors that taste amazing the food has to be amazing to eat and you know it's interesting even in italy we see you see um we have a a, a pretty important wine program uh, where we where we source wines from sort of 2022 uh, boutique family predominantly family-owned producers in 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 an, in out of italy and, and a little bit out of champagne and so we're there pre-covid we're there and we just come back but we're there pre pretty much every year so we get to see stuff that's going on in Italy and the evolution there. And for for a long time, I think, Michelin star and a high-level Michelin star, whilst it was definitely, you know, warranted two, three Michelin stars restaurants, it, it didn't usually feel to me like it was Italian food. It tasted like it tasted like food or an international restaurant kind of kind of style of food. But, yeah, with, with I guess, Italian inspiration, and that's what it was like. But... That's changing too, you know. Some of my favourite restaurants in Italy, I used to hate Michelin star restaurants in Italy because it didn't taste like Italian food. But now I, I don't, I don't think that's. I now I think that's changed. I think it's evolved over there too. So, you know, um, Dal Pescatore, which is the longest-standing three Michelin star restaurant, was avant-garde twenty-four years ago, but not really now. Um, you know, the food, the food is, you know, um, it tastes like Italian food. Uh, Casa Pedbellini in Verona is just, you know, two Michelin stars. It, the food is un unmistakably Italian. It's not all the dishes the Veronese will even relate to, but it tastes beautiful. And so I guess from our perspective, you know, we've, um, you know, the service elements are pretty, are pretty, you know, they're pretty elevated at Pendolino now. We have trolley services for Prosecco and wine that you start the meal. Um, 
we do the same with grappas and cognacs and um and we do a little you know, complimentary truffles that we do off of the trolley. So there's all these elements that have come into what we do that, um, yeah, have sort of changed it. I guess our space is is probably now um, very much it's, you know, it's a refined dining, Italian dining experience, and, you know, everything's sort of handcrafted and hand-sourced. We make all the breads. We make, um, you know, of course we have... Um, we sort of pro for some of the best extra virgin olive oil on the planet, as simple as that, all, all grown in Australia, I might add. Um, and oils that rank in the top sort of 20 extra virgin olive oils of the year, every year internationally, shows like New York, which is the big one. Um, and I'm still a sort of a national olive oil judge. Um, so uh, there's a big emphasis on that. Um, and, yeah, I guess uh, uh, it's... I think that's why, you know, that's sort of really where we kind of sit in the sort of dining scene in terms of Italian restaurants in Australia now. Um, yeah. How, how important is it for you to pass on the knowledge of great produce like a pig to the next generation of chefs coming through your kitchen? I think, um, I think there's a real keenness. Like I think, you know, I think that a lot of people are really, it's not something that you need to encourage too much. The guys are pretty into it. And, and that's, that's nice to see. I guess stuff like getting my dad's recipe for the guanciale to make guanciale and to do things like that. And just every time you, you know, you're like traveling to Italy is really important for us as well because it's, you, you do see new stuff and it's so, so, regional like micro regional like every five ten kilometers the the things change there's you know there's something like 300 bolognese ragu recipes like depending on you know every little town's different so so but for me it's this this new stuff but it's also being reminded of the greatness of traditional um traditional italian traditions in cooking so for me it's it's you know, things are getting things are lost with every generation, and new things happen. Um, but I think um, I think the young guys and girls really, um, I think they really, uh, I think they're really quite interested in it. You know, they're they're like they're quite genuinely quite renowned. Um, yeah, I mean, something bizarre has happened through this through COVID as well as my. My son's been working with us for most of the Luca, who's twenty, and he's he's much to my much to my um. He has a funny story with that. He him and he, he 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 sort of is a savior of our business to a large degree. Got all these all these mates that are studying at uni to come and work for us who'd never sort of had a job before. Half these guys and. It's because we live, we, it's because we live in an era now where you know we're not everybody needs a part time job, I guess, and because um, you know because you know it's a, it's a dis- different time in history. But but these kids have really seemed to have grown as as individuals and people just by actually going to work and dealing with people. And we get feedback from the parents saying that, that you know they've just become nicer, much nicer kids, and um, since starting work, and uh, one of them's. One of us developed into a full section waiter, which is amazing. He's selling caviar and truffles and, you know, $400 bottles of wine is like, and he's doing it really well, which blew our mind. And then another friend 
and, and, and for the record, I tried to talk my son out of be wanting to become a chef, and I, I tried to talk him out of it in you know in great length. But he's anyway, he's 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 doing it. He's enrolled in TAFE, and then one of his mates who's sort of a year or two into an engineering course at universities decided that he wants to be a chef and stop his engineering, which I took I took about three months try and talk him to try and talk him out of that as well. And um, and then he said, no, nope, I'm going to do it. I want to I want to be a chef. And I said, okay, that's good. Now 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 I want to sit down with your parents. Maybe your parents. I can talk some sense into them. But no, no, they were convinced that he needed to be a chef as well. So so anyway, we he he's so he's um he he anyway he anyway he um he's no longer studying engineering. He's now in sort of first year apprentice. At Pendolino, so, um, on some levels, it's so nice to see these kids actually doing something that um, a lot of people are not looking at anymore because um, there's a perception that it's not. But these kids are sort of like connecting with stuff that they really enjoy doing. They really, really like it, and they like working with produce. They like the tactile nature, you know, that kinesthetic sort of. Um, process of cooking, and which is beautiful because that's why we all started doing it for a love of food and produce and this transformation that we do. Um, you know, I really believe in Australia that we need to be promoting, uh, we really, there needs to be a pathway between uh, vocational education and training and, and tertiary pathways. It needs to be stronger so that more of these stories can happen. And it's not a dead end story where you become a chef and then you get to your mid 30s and you know, don't want to work in kitchens anymore or anymore and not have anywhere to go in terms of their management or whatever. So I think there really needs to be a rethinking of, you know, I've said this a lot, that there really needs to be um, a, this pipeline, really a, a, a pathway, like an interface, and it needs to be overt from the start where you can start an apprenticeship and transition to a tertiary course, whether it be business or marketing or whatever. Because, you know, um, you know, particularly so front of house and sommeliers and 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 wait staff. You know, it's the perfect training to become a you know a spirits industry or a wine industry executive if you come through restaurants and do full sommelier training. Same with a chef. You know, if you want to work in any of the producer industries, to be a chef first. I mean, the big the big lack that a lot of producers have is they don't have that knowledge. Um, so. You know, so in some ways, I, I might sound like I've discouraged it, but I also see that this is the way forward. I think a lot more people would enter our industry and do it with with great joy. Um, you know, but it's just that kids are discouraged from a very young age because there's this perception that it's you know it's a dead end it's a dead end job to some degrees, and it's you know, and it's really not. It's quite the opposite. It's it can be an amazing. Um, launch pad for a stronger career in restaurants or even the associated industries, which is big business. Well, Nino, it's an absolute honour to have a chat with you uh, today. You're a bloody inspiration. And uh, as ever, please keep in contact and um, we'll catch up again soon. Always a pleasure, Anthony. As I said, there's no problem. Have a good chat. <laughs> this is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.